Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Second Chapter Podcast. For those of you who are new here, I'm your host, Kristen Duffy, and I'm on a mission to tell the stories of women over 35. Last week was meant to be my last episode of season six, but I was lucky enough to sneak in an interview with Pauline Holmes and jump at the chance. At 62, Pauline is a newly published and award-winning slam poet. I love this self-description she uses on her website. Pauline Holmes is known for her poems about dogs. This is a subject she can easily relate to, as she is very dog-like herself, being small, a bit hairy, and prone to making a mess in the corner if she's not exercised regularly. I'll be back on the 9th of August with a whole new season of brilliant women who were reminding us that it's never too late to start the second chapter. But for now, here's Pauline Holmes. I was very good at creative writing at school, but nobody ever mentioned that writing could be a career or even performing could be a career. It's just funny how when I left school, I can remember the chap from, it was one of the teachers that was the careers person, if you like. And basically, as a woman, you could be a nurse or you could be a teacher. Hi, Pauline. Thanks for joining me today. Hello. Thank you for having me. It is lovely to see you. I'm really excited to talk about your upcoming Edinburgh Fringe show and just everything that's brought you to this point at 62 now. Is that correct? That is the correct age. Yes. (laughs) Going to Edinburgh was not on the original bucket list, I have to say. This has been quite a surprise for me too. We will definitely get to that point, but I love to go back in time a little bit, talk about some of your early career things, because I love to talk about what led to various changes in your life. I know that at the beginning of early days, school graduation, you went into a desk job, which was not for you. Definitely not. I was not designed to sit at a desk. (laughs) And how long did you manage to hold out with a desk job? Oh, no, this is the thing. I'm ashamed to say that I wasted 10 years of my life at that job. And it's just so easy to waste time when you're young because you don't realize that the time has gone. I knew when I came home after the first day there that I did not like it and it was not for me. But at the time, I was 17 and my parents said, oh, it's a really good job and it's a career and you will be stupid to waste it. And yeah, I just stayed there really unhappy until my parents died, which sounds like an awful thing. My dad died when I was 25. He had Parkinson's and he had a fall and died from pneumonia as a result of the fall and going into hospital. And then my mum died a year later from cancer, which then left me free. And That was when I was then brave enough to make those changes. Up until then, I think I was just afraid of disappointing them, which I'm sure if they were here now and were listening to this, they would probably be quite upset because they didn't realize how much pressure they were putting on me to have this good job and the kind of lifestyle that they thought I should have as opposed to what I wanted to have. Yeah. I think that happens a lot because I feel like so many people I've talked to, there is this sort of, I was told that as a woman, I should go into this kind of career or my parents wanted the best for me and my family always did this. So there's this kind of push that's supposed to be what's best for you. But if, as time goes on, I think a lot of times you hear parents say, I'm really sorry, that that wasn't the best advice. Yeah, I think that's really true. Yeah. I think everybody... Certainly from my own point of view, my parents were doing what they thought was best based on their understanding of the world at that time and based on what life was like for them when they left school. And obviously when they left school, there was no safety net or anything. You just went and did basically whatever your parents had done. And that's what you did. The idea I remember once saying to my dad, I, I just don't like it. This, this isn't for me. And he was like, no, you're not meant to go to work. <laughs> That's why they call it work. <laughs> <laughs> What's this? Liking doesn't come into it. Yeah. And that was very much their generation. Yeah. I do think it's a new thing to say, oh, I want to be happy in my job. <laughs> Shock. <laughs> <laughs> I want to spend as many hours a day possible not being miserable. (laughs) 
<laughs> Very much. So I have to say, I I don't think I know a lot of people who do horse training, but you are not the first person I've interviewed for the podcast that has then gone on to train horses. How did ah. that happen? Right. I was one of these pony mad children who had horses on the wallpaper, had bundles of magazines, spent all weekend down at the stables, saved up my pocket money for riding lessons, that sort of thing. The dream as a child was always to work with horses. And when I first left school at 16, back in those days, you didn't have colleges or anything. If you wanted to work with horses and have a career as such, you went and found the local stables and you went there as a working pupil. And the deal was that you worked for nothing in exchange for riding lessons. And so that was the basis that I went to. It was called Darland Liveries and it's now long gone. But the owner of the yard went through a divorce not long after I started training there. And of course, all the lessons went for a burden. And my dad said to me, you're just there as a manual laborer. You're not learning anything. This is a dead end job. You're not going to get anywhere. You need to go find yourself a proper career. So I got sent off down to the career center and they looked at what O levels I had. And this is the funny thing because I went to, my parents were there Best intentions sent me to a convent school, which again, I did not enjoy at all. <laughs> I can imagine that. Would, I don't know. I don't think I would have done very well there, but. <laughs> I'm sure some people do thrive in that kind of atmosphere, but it really wasn't me. So I'd left school with these five O levels, thinking that I wasn't particularly bright. Nobody had ever told me I was intelligent. And went down to the careers center. They look at, took one look at these five O levels and went, oh, you're really well qualified. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know I was. And then she went through her little file of what jobs were coming up and she went, oh, now the Halifax, they're looking for a trainee clerk cashier and they want someone with an aptitude with figures. And I went, that's not me. Right. And she went, you've got a maths O level. You've got an aptitude with figures. I'm like, oh, seriously? I really don't think I have. Anyway, I toddled off, went for the interview, got the job. And as it turned out, I did have an aptitude with figures. Um, because when you spend all, it's like anything, if you spend all day doing something, you get better at it. So if you spend all day with ledgers and things, adding things up and doing percentages, you get quicker at it, you get better at it. Right. So I actually was good at my job. I just hated it. And I've forgotten what your question was now, so I've no idea where that was going. Oh, no, you ended up with horses. <laughs> right, back to the subject in hand. Yes, so I ended up working at the Halifax. Horses were going to be my hobby. And I saved up all my money, got my first horse when I was 18, and then decided, actually, I'm sure I could train to be a riding instructor and work at the Halifax. So I went up, there was a training center in Benenden called The Moat, which trained a lot of people from the States. It was a very, it, it was a little bit ahead of its time because there weren't colleges back then, mm -hmm. but this was almost like a college. And so I had an interview with their equitation director, a lovely lady called Muriel Ambler, who was really very inspiring. And she said, yeah, if you want to come down here at the weekends and give it a go. She said, at the end of the day, with that kind of an attitude, you're going to work really hard. Why not try? And so I ended up qualifying as a riding instructor while still working at the Halifax. Okay. And then of course, as soon as my parents had died, I then got married in the same year that my mum died. My mum died in May and I got married in the September to a guy who was heavily into horses. And of course, then I went off and did the, the, the dream of the riding instructor and jumped at Hickstead and that kind of thing and thoroughly enjoyed myself. Yeah. Until something happened. You had an accident? I did. In March 2003, whilst riding in the sand school on my own horse, a friend of mine was putting the jumps up and we were having a bit of fun and she put up 
a fence halfway down the long side in the sand school. And I came round the corner, jumped it the first time, and Jeannie, the horse I had at the time, really stood off, which she used to love to do. And as I landed and went round the corner, my friend Jilly said, do you know what, you're going to come to a really bad end if you keep standing horses off at fences like that. And I giggled and went, yeah, I know, I'm just, it's just so bad, but it's so lovely. Came round again on the same stride. Um, Jeannie again took off early, but this time she left a leg dangling and it caught the pole. Mm. And instead of the pole just dropping, it rolled and she turned a somersault. I went head first into the sand and she landed on top of me. And that was that. Mm. Oh, okay. First of all, I have to go back because I don't know enough about jumping horses to know when you say that you're standing them at the... Yeah. Say this again. Tell me what you're talking about. I can imagine, I think, but then when you said it was a bad thing, I'm like, oh, I don't know if I know. (laughs) Okie dokie. When my blood is up, I can get a bit gung-ho. And when you're jumping a horse, what you should do really is allow them to take you to the fence and then pop over it. But if you kick on a bit, the horse will go a little bit faster and then take off a little bit earlier, which gives you a, a lovely feeling when you're jumping, especially if you've got a horse that's quite bold. And Jeannie was bold, so she used to like to jump big, even if the fence wasn't particularly large. So the downside to when a horse takes off early is that they start to land too soon. Whereas if they got a little bit deeper to the fence, closer to the fence, then they can jump it more easily. So if you've got a really talented horse, they've got that extra reach. And Jeannie does. Oh, she did. But it just failed her. She just left a leg dangling. And of course, she hadn't quite got over the fence with the front legs, let alone the hind legs. And so she came down in the middle of it and got tangled up in the poles. And that made her fall. I went first, head first into the sand, and then she fell over as well. And she landed on top of me. And that's where the damage was done. So what kind of damage was done? It does not sound good. In terms of damage done, it could have been a hell of a lot worse. Mm. Because it turns out, when they did the scans and things, that I was born with an unusually wide spinal canal. And what that meant was that the damage that was done, it didn't bruise the spinal cord or sever it. All it did was push onto the sheath that your spinal canal is in. So apart from concussion, I got up and walked away from the accident and thought there was nothing wrong, but then started suffering from the most horrendous headaches, absolutely horrendous. And I still suffer with them now, but not as much. But also where my head had got bent backwards, although there's enough room for that to happen without me doing anything to my spinal cord. I did a lot of muscular damage. And so it's muscular damage that has really been the problem, if you like, as opposed to anything skeletal. I hate to even ask about Jeannie. Jeannie got away fine, as it was thought at the time. And yeah, in, in fact, this is the daft thing. And this is people with horses for you. My friend Jilly is standing in the middle of the sand school looking slightly dazed. Jeannie rolled over and got straight up. I apparently was still for a moment and then got up and apparently got back on. I've got no recollection of this. Got back on, turned Jeannie in a circle, went round, jumped the fence again, jumped it another two times. And then Jilly said to me, I think maybe we should stop now. And they pulled Jeannie up and then promptly burst into tears and then said, I don't know why I'm crying. I've got the most horrendous PMT. And Jilly went, I think it's fair enough. You have had a really bad accident. And then I said, well, what accident? And that was at that point that she realized that I was obviously concussed and they got the ambulance and all the rest of it. Yeah. Mm, Wow. (laughs) Wow. I always think I'm not that squeamish. And then I hear a story like that and I'm like, I am so squeamish. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny because I've not told this to anybody for years now because it's something that happened when I was 43 and a long time has passed and lots of other great stuff has happened and that kind of thing. But even just telling you it 
I can feel my hands slightly shaky and my tummy is turning over. So there was a lot of trauma went on there that even now is still, yeah, the brain is going, yes, I'm I'm glad we don't do that anymore. (laughs) Yeah. So was it pretty instantly that was the end with horses or was it something that as you started realizing you were having these headaches and not feeling great that it just became not possible? How did that work? No, I was drag kicking and screaming really into eventually saying, okay, we need to stop now because I still, there was still stuff I wanted to do. My husband, Carson, he rode. It was something that brought us together. All our friends were in the sport and everything. And so I kept trying to ride and this will sound horrendous. The turning point was I was riding my husband's horse and we'd been out for a ride and I was just coming back and I was riding him up the drive to the stables where I was working and I had the reins at the buckle. I'm not really thinking about what I'm doing and Skipper spooked and Mm. as he spooked, he spun round to the right. My body spun round to the right with him and my head didn't. My head stayed where it was and then flipped sideways. And this will sound daft because your riding hat doesn't weigh that much, but I couldn't physically lift my head up. And so the Mm. weight of my head dragged me off backwards and I ended up on the floor. And it was at that point I thought, do you know what? There's other stuff going on here. And that was the muscular damage. The muscles don't react as quickly as they did before. And that was the point that I thought, no, do you know what? There's going to be another bad accident. And it's not a case of there might be. It's, is it going to happen this week or next? And so that was that. So realizing that there was likely to be a pretty bad accident got you off the horses. It must have been terrible because I know what it's like to have all of my friends, like most of my friends are either theater people or triathlon people. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't for that, I don't know who I would know. So this whole group is gone. Well, that whole part of your life has to change. And you started teaching Pilates? Not quite. There was an interim time, which I must say, it was a very dark time in my life because, as you say, all, my whole world was in, revolved around the horses and suddenly that was all gone. And it's surprising as well, when you're not involved in that world, your friends disappear too. And that's nothing against those friends. But I've got one or two that have been with me sick through thick and thin, but most of them just fell by the wayside. And that's sort of fair enough because we didn't have anything in common with them anymore. And so that was really hard to get on board with. And I start, I discovered a complementary therapy called Bowen, B-O-W-E-N. And it was actually a friend of mine that suggested she'd had a Bowen treatment done on her horse. And she said that her horse moved so much better afterwards. And she said, this is something you could do, Pauline, and then you can still be in that world. But just as a therapist, instead of a rider, I looked into training to be an equine Bowen therapist. But before you could do that, you had to train to do humans. So I started the human course, initially thinking, I just need to do this in order to get to go and do the horses but actually discovered that I really enjoyed working with people who were in pain and were looking for ways forward. And so you do anatomy and physiology as part of the course. And that was absolutely fascinating. I was really worried about doing that section because obviously I hadn't done well at school, but you did well enough for Halifax. <laughs> Rewind. You did just Rewind. fine. <laughs> but it turned out that I found the anatomy and physiology absolutely fascinating. And that's what led me down the Pilates route because I wanted more tools to help my human clients. Although I did treat horses and I did that for a number of years, I really enjoyed working with people and finding ways to help them. And Pilates was something 
that I did as part of my rehab. And it made sense to go and train to be a teacher because I did enjoy being a riding instructor. I did enjoy working with people. And so I think it was 2008, I went to body control Pilates up in London and did their teacher training course. And quite frankly, I've never looked back. It's interesting too, because the whole concept of Pilates was that he was having, I know that he was a dancer and had issues with his back and things like that. So to have suffered an injury that was becoming debilitating and then say, oh, this has worked for me. I want to share it with other people. It just seems, it seems like a natural progression of what Pilates should be in a way. Yes, definitely, definitely. And when I go on workshops and things as part of my CPD, continuous professional development, and you get a group of Pilates teachers together, we all swap ideas and things of how to help people and what different movements can do. And it's just an absolutely fascinating world. To be fair, when I first left school, Pilates hadn't really got to the UK yet. I think it had got as far as Australia. So it wasn't there as a career option, if you like. And this is the other thing, looking with sort of 21st century eyes compared to 1970s eyes, there are more options, if you like, for careers. And certainly if there was a school leaver that was asking that liked physical movement, liked working with people, yeah, Pilates is a brilliant career. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. But you would never have, because I feel like even though it was invented so long ago or the concept was from so long ago, it really has only taken off. I mean, what, maybe 20 years, something like that. So mm. it's not surprising at all because what you've been doing about 15, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So you were a pioneer in a way. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I never thought of myself as a pioneer. I'm going to continue calling you a pioneer because obviously <laughs> you love animals and part, partly because of that's led you to writing poetry and being a writer. So you say Pilates never looked back, but there is a lot of other things in your world. Yeah, that's true. Definitely. Which I didn't know was there or there was an option to do more with. I was very good at creative writing at school, but nobody ever mentioned that writing could be a career or even performing could be a career. It's just funny how when I left school, I can remember the chat from, it was one of the teachers that was the careers person, if you like. And basically as a woman, you could be a nurse or you could be a teacher. Yep. <laughs> or if you weren't that bright, then you could be a secretary. And if you weren't bright enough to be a secretary, then they really didn't want you in the convent because you're not very clever. Yeah. <laughs> Which sounds like a dreadful thing to say, but that's how it came across to me. I have to say, I remember going to design school because I used to be a fashion designer and there was this mysterious industrial design. I knew I didn't want to be a graphic designer because my dad was a graphic designer and a, I didn't want to follow in his footsteps. B, he was a perfectionist. I never thought I could live up to him. But this mysterious industrial design never crossed my mind because all I knew is that a lot of what they did was designing cars. So I thought you needed to know about cars. It was 99% men at my college or my university. And looking back now, now that I know more about it, or even when I was ready to graduate with fashion design and had seen what people were doing, I was like, oh, they need to know about aerodynamics or they also design chairs. And I'm obsessed with chairs, which is so weird. There's all these things that unless you sit down with somebody or unless somebody focuses on telling you this is what your potentials are. I feel like I'm doing career quizzes all the time now, <laughs> all these years <laughs> later, thinking nobody told me I could be a park ranger. That's something that comes up for me all the time. It is. It's just really funny. And I guess you'll never know everything you could possibly do, but it is really good when you can find the right thing. So mm. I'll, enough about me. How did you end up putting pen to paper or key to keyboard to start actually writing poetry? That started off. Um, it was a family holiday to Northumberland in, I think it was twenty. 17 or 16. I can't remember the exact year because two years have been lost with the whole COVID thing. So it was an extended family holiday. So the whole 
Holmes clan went to Northumberland and we stayed in a big house. And the only way to get the smaller Holmeses to bed at night so that we could stay downstairs and drink was to try and bribe them to get them upstairs. And at the time, the small people, as I used to call them, I think James would have been six. So Livy would have been eight and probably Jake was 10. So the only way to get them upstairs, brush your teeth, get into bed, was I said, I tell you, if you go upstairs, I'll read you a story. And they're like, yeah, okay. So they all went upstairs, got the teeth, got into bed. Have you got any books? And they're like, no. <laughs> Why would we bring books on holiday? I don't know. <laughs> so I ended up making up a story, which was led by them. I would sit on the bed at night and I had Fidget, who was our little lurches, she'd sit on the bed with me and I would make up a story based on what they wanted in the story. So they wanted themselves in the story. They wanted their toy dogs in the story. They wanted me and Fidget in the story and they had to be unicorn and the dogs <laughs> had to be able to fly. They were uni dogs and it was great. So I told them this story and of course then they wanted it written down. So I was about 10,000 words all in all. Or was it 30,000? I can't remember now. Anyway, I thought I'd better go on this writing course because obviously it's years since I've done any kind of grammar or anything. And I didn't want to type up this story and then be having bad punctuation and grammar and stuff in it. So I signed up for this creative writing course. And of course, the clue is in the title. It's a creative writing course. And as it turned out, they didn't do grammar. <laughs> <laughs> Like, we don't care if you put the full stuff That's in the it, right place. <laughs> That's your problem. But what it did do was to rekindle that creative writer inside me and something that I had completely forgotten about, which was one of the things I used to do when I worked at the Halifax, was in my lunch hour, I would type articles for writing magazines. And I huh. got several of them published. Yeah. And do you know what? This, this I've only just remembered this. At the time, because they used to pay me £50 an article, and I used to think, oh, this is amazing, because I just churn one out on my lunch break, and I get 50 quid. Woo! Never occurred to me to ask them for a job or how to take it yeah. further. Yeah. So anyway, back to the creative writing course. The first piece of homework we had to do was to write about something that had really happened. And so for some reason, I decided to do a poem, because it could be a story, an essay, or a poem. For some reason, I decided to do a poem. And the poem I did was called The Chocolate Cheesecake, which is a true story about a lady, a cheesecake, and a dog. And I was the lady, and the dog was my first dog, Jumble. And that is now the first poem in my collection of poems for dog lovers, Talk to the Bull. That's how it started. So is this the same creative writing course that I read about in the bookseller that you mentioned mm -hmm. in that article. Okay. I'm going to get on my, everybody knows that listens regularly. I'm going to get up on my second chapter soapbox. I don't like the advice that you were given in this or the kind of, basically, I know you said that women of a certain age become invisible to parts of society. I will let you tell the rest of the story, but I do not like this story. I like how it ends, but I don't like <laughs> how it begins. <laughs> I think some people who are put in front of students have this strange need to prepare everybody for the worst. From my own point of view as a teacher, I thought your job was always to inspire and then leave people to their own journey and they can discover the worst if that happens to them. But this guy, one of the first things he said was that we were more or less wasting our time. We were unlikely to get published and we might as well give up now. Oh, okay. I've just paid for this course. I can't really give up. It's cost a lot of money, if you don't mind me saying. Yeah. And that was his philosophy. And it was a course that, if I remember from the article, it was mostly older women or mostly... Mm -hmm. Women of a certain age, shall I say? <laughs> yes, we were all women or gentlemen of a certain age. Yes. And we were all giving it a go. And it was quite unnecessary, actually. The, the dropout rate in the course was extraordinary. That's no exaggeration. 
And from my own point of view as a teacher who has a professional standard, if my clients dropped at the rate that the clients dropped out of this course, I would be worried. I wouldn't be taking the attitude, they've paid, so I've got my money, whatever. I'd be like, no, what am I doing wrong here? Because these people started out keen. They can't all have discovered that they weren't free at six o'clock on a Monday evening. Something's happening here. And what is it? And what needs to change? Can't just let people sign up onto a course and then mark their homework in a way that is not constructive. And then just let them just drift off demoralized. Yeah, it was not good. It really was not good. It's not how I would run a course if I was put in a similar situation at all. Never. As a teacher, your job is to inspire, to create communities. One of the things I was told when I was training to be a Pilates teacher by Lynn Robinson, she came and took us for one of the modules. And she said, what's your most important role as a teacher? And of course, people were coming up with, you must know your subject and um, you've got to stay up to date. She kept saying, no, there's more important than that. Something more important than that. And she kept saying, no, there's something more important than that. And then she told us what it was. And she said, your most important role as a teacher is to provide an environment in which everybody feels valued and supported during that time that they are with you, because you don't know what people's lives are like outside of that time. And I thought, do you know what? That you just hit the nail right on the head, because that is your role, that everybody is valued. And he didn't do that. He really didn't do that. I'm a triathlon coach. And one of the things I'm doing some one-to-one training right now. And one of the things that is our constant goal is just do no harm. Just make people preferably better than when you started with them. But at the end of the day, you like you said, they have to feel valued and supported. And that's partially mentally as much as it is physically and everything else. So yeah. And then they will try their best and they won't be afraid to try for fear of being criticized for having a go and using their initiative and that kind of thing. Yeah. No, that's absolutely. You mentioned the book. So we know that guy was wrong. But (laughs) before the book, there was the performance. Mm. So I don't, personally, I feel like I would probably think I'm going to sit down and write, okay, I've written something. Now do I try to get it published? But you took yours onto the stage. How did that happen? The one thing I do have to be grateful to that tutor for is that he was the one that said, if you're serious about trying to get published, you need to start sharing your work with the public and get used to performing it. Because if you are published, then your publisher will expect you to go and do readings and things in shops and stuff. So you need to get used to it now. And that was a really good piece of advice. But what I did was I thought, because when... I did handed in that first piece of homework. He wasn't very complimentary about it, hmm. right? At the start of poetry obviously wasn't to his style, and that's fair enough. It's not the kind of thing that he would write himself. But at the same time, there's room for all types of poetry. So when I read the feedback, and I've still got, I've still got the piece of paper with his pen on it. When I read that and... He used to have a habit of going through people's homework. He used to say that he was sharing it to the room so that all could benefit. And he never said whose homework he was talking about. But it was obviously always very clear to the person whose homework it was that he was talking about them. And he'd said one or two really quite scathing things about the poem that I had written that hurt. And in fact, I went home and I cried in the car on the way home. That sounds like it's doing harm. It's not putting you in a supportive place. It is not inspiring you. (laughs) Yeah. So I thought, right, mate. Okay. So you think that this poem isn't any good. Let's put it in front of the public and we'll see what they think. And so I took it along to an open mic. Because I'd done sort of drama at school, I assumed that you had to learn it off by heart. 
So I'd learned it off by heart and then went into this pub and the lady that was running the gig, her name was Lisa Vigor, and she's lovely. She was really encouraging. She was like, no, come on, let's get you up on the stage. Give it a go. And so my hands were shaking, my legs were shaking, but I delivered this poem and everybody loved it. And I thought it can't be that bad then because they like it and they're people in a pub. They don't know if the meter is right and all that kind of malarkey, but they like the concept. And so that's how the performing started. Was this performance, would you call it slam what you were doing at that point? Because it was amongst a rowdy audience, there was some feedback, or was this like, I'm doing a poetry reading of my poem? No, this was a mixed open mic. It was spoken word and music. So you had all sorts there. You had people with guitars. There was a piano in the corner of the pub. So somebody did a piece on the piano. There were some poets and some storytellers. It was a real mixed bag. It was a lovely evening, really nice atmosphere, but it wasn't a slam as such. The slam started a few months later. What happened was I went to this open mic and everybody was really friendly. And I went the first month, this was in the February, I went the second month and I got chatting to somebody when I went the second time and they said, oh, there's another poetry gig in Rochester called Big Trouble. Why don't you come along to that one? And so I did, and it was really good fun. And I went the following month and they had a headliner and his name was Connor Sansby and he ran a publishing house called Whiskey and Beards. And obviously you have him doing his bit and you have the open micers. So Mm -hmm. I did my bit and I did another one of my dog poems. And then as I was leaving, he was downstairs in the coffee bar place. And as I walked out the door, he said, I really like your work and handed me his card. And I thought, oh, you're just being polite, mate. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) Toddled off and thought no more of it. And then I saw him again. Several months later, this was at the Faversham Fringe. They'd been, again, it was a poetry event, but they had an open mic in it. So I got along for the open mic and he was there again. And he said to me again, I really like your work. And I thought, that's the second time you've said it. Go on, start a conversation with the man, Pauline, off he pop. (laughs) (laughs) So I started a conversation and from that He told me about a thing called the Kent Poetry Collective and a mentoring scheme. And so I looked that up and saw he was one of the mentors. So I thought, okay, I'll tick that box, see what he says. And he was the one that said, go and start doing some slams because it'll hone up your performance skills and also your writing skills. He said, you need to hear as many different types of poetry from as many different types of artists as you can, because that way your poetry will develop. If you always hear the same thing, you will always write the same thing and you won't change. And so that's how the slamming started. So for the benefit of everybody listening, spoken words, slam, that kind of stuff, it's a bit different than just going and hearing somebody read their poetry. How would you describe it? Okay. On the face of it, a slam is a competition insofar as you are judged and someone is judged the winner. That said, it's a very lighthearted sort of thing. What you get, you usually get 10 poets and those 10 poets have three minutes in which to deliver one poem. So there's no time for lengthy explanation about what the poem's about and what your journey was. You have to just get up there, deliver it, engage with your audience. So it encourages people to write poetry that's very easy to understand because Mm. it's being delivered to the ear and those 10 poets are then judged by three, between three and five, depending on who's running the slam, randomly selected judges and they are members of the audience. So you don't, you can never predict the result of a slam because it's whether One particular poem happens to connect with those judges on that night, in that moment. And that, to me, is what makes it so enjoyable 
because it is random. The first slam I won was with one of my comic dog poems, mm -hmm. which completely floored the organizers. They were presumably, they said, presumably there are some dog lovers in the audience tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I've never won another one with a dog poem. They're not really what you would consider to be your traditional slam poem. But this is what I mean about who happens to be there on the night. And they are just very enjoyable. As somebody said to me once who isn't a poet at such, but does going to the theatre and going to gigs, his take on going to slams, he's a photographer, so he often has to go to events in his professional capacity. What he said was, what I like about slams is that somebody will come up on the stage and you don't really like their poem, but they're only up there for three minutes and then you get to hear somebody <laughs> else. <laughs> yeah, I do a lot of new writing nights that feature maybe six short plays or something. And I think that's the beauty of something like that is that you get to see six short plays. There's probably going to be maybe three, four that you like, two that you love. It's 10 minutes long. So even if you really don't like one, wait till the next one because you'll probably love it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's always a great atmosphere. It's very encouraging. Most organizers, before they start, will say to the audience, don't forget, it takes a lot of courage for somebody to come up on the stage. So everybody is to be cheered. Nobody is to score any less than a six because just getting up on the stage, that deserves a six. So it's six upwards and everybody just whoops and cheers. It's a wonderful carnival atmosphere, really good fun. So I want to talk more about the Edinburgh show and I want to talk about your book, but this seems like a good moment to hear one of your poems. If you don't mind, I would, I'm so excited. <laughs> Are you ready? Is this a good moment for it? It certainly is. Yes. Let's hear one. So the poem I will share will be that very first one that I ever wrote. The one that got criticized a little bit. Yes. So the poem is called The Chocolate Cheesecake. And it's a true story about a lady, a cheesecake, and her dog. She stared at the empty pie plate, a look of horror on her face, eyes wide, a mix of shock and wonder. Oh my God, the waste! Once there'd been a cheesecake made with tender loving care by this newlywed. So keen to impress with a newfound culinary flair. Lovingly, she'd mixed icing sugar on mascarpone cheese, spread it upon a biscuit face, and in her attempt to please her guests, who were all due to arrive hungry within the hour, she'd placed it on a cup glove stand, decorated it with flowers. And then she made a big mistake. Distracted by the phone, this kitchen goddess turned her back, and a canine Al Capone leapt and seized his moment, and in one tongueful scoffed the lot. Slowly the horror dawned on her, that cheesecake was all she'd got. There was no backup in the fridge, no ice cream in the freezer to placate her guests who knew her and were all likely to tease her if they caught her, rushing out to find the nearest cash dispenser, hoping to buy a substitute from her local Marks and Spencer. If only she'd been more watchful, place the pud on a higher shelf, shut the wretched dog out of the kitchen, there was no one to blame but herself. And all the while the clock kept ticking. Forlornly she held up a bag of chocolate chips. As the precious whippet crept back to bed and quietly licked his lip. Oh, so 
fun. You know what? I think it's really interesting because like you said, I can see this sort of highbrow tutor saying this isn't for everyone, but how fun to just listen to your voices and this story that's so recognizable. And I was so, I was, my laugh is so loud. I was like, if I bust out laughing, it's, you're not going to be able to hear you. <laughs> but a canine Al Capone might be one of my <laughs> <laughs> Might be one of my favorite things ever. <laughs> yes, I think if more people knew that poetry could be that, as well as mm. all the very highbrow poetry we are forced to study in school, I think poetry would be, it is when you get out in a slam or a spoken word kind of thing, when you can hear stories of life and hearing it mm. performed is definitely so exciting. I think so. It poetry does come alive when it's performed. There are different types of poetry. There are poems that you sit and read quietly. And I do write, I write a, on a variety of subjects and some of my stuff is more contemplative. But a bit like reading a book versus going to see a play, hmm. they both have equal value. They're just two different commodities and there's room for both. And some of them can be both performance and for the page. When I had my book published, one of the nicest things that people have said to me is that they laughed at some of the poems and then they cried and then they laughed again and then they cried because there was a, a, a mix of what it's like to have a dog. And so it, it can be all things to all men, definitely. Yeah, there's room for everything. And the book is Talk to the Paw, which I think is a really hilarious title, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> And so you did get published, despite being told that probably would never happen. And the book has done really well. It has. It's been tremendously successful. It's been a lovely surprise. And people kept saying to me, of course, if you publish the dog poems, it's, it'll be very commercial because there are a lot of dog lovers out there. And that's very true. But the first run of books sold out in under three weeks. In fact, it was a little over the two weeks, it was, it, they just went, they just flew out the door and we'd missed because there was a delay at the printers. We'd missed the Christmas market, if you like. So this was happening January, February time. And people were buying, one person bought five books because they wanted them to share with their friends. And I think Connor was very wise here that the book costs eight pounds, which is a lot of money. People can buy multiple books and give them to friends. If this was a 15 pound book, people would think twice, but priced at eight pounds, a large part of that goes is the printing costs. So mm -hmm. I make a bit, Connor makes a bit, but it means that people will buy it. Whereas if we try to price it higher, people wouldn't buy it so readily because it would take more thought. Oh, this is something I'm buying for me or buying for a friend. Should I be spending this money on me? But no, I want this book. Yeah. Yeah. At eight pounds, it's, it doesn't even need to be a gift for a special occasion. It's just, Ooh. oh, my friend would love this. They have a dog. I'll just get it. Yeah. That's exactly what I mean. Exactly what I mean. But people will buy it for their friends. And that's what people were doing. They were buying one for themselves because they like dogs. They were going, oh, Auntie Jo, she could, she's going to love this. And they were buying one for Auntie Jo and Uncle Jim and all the rest of it. <laughs> oh, Uncle Jim loves dogs. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll loop back to what I started out with at the beginning, which is that you're taking Pauline Holmes Goes to the Dogs to Edinburgh Fringe, which regular listeners, again, will know that I'm producing Surfing the Holy Land for the Fringe. I just had Aaron Hunter on a couple weeks ago, who is the star and writer of this show. But it's a huge undertaking. Yes. Talk to me about going to the fringe at 62. <laughs> I know I went about five years ago and I'm not 62 still. And it's hard. It's a big deal to go to the fringe. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. This started off, we went to the fringe just for a little bit of a holiday. This was 2019. And we went with my niece, Hillary who's heavily into the arts. And we had a wonderful time. It's just such a carnival up there. It's, going to the Fringe should be something everybody should experience because there's nothing like it. It's just such a joyous occasion. 
I just Hillary described is- it to someone. I just described it to someone as bucket list good. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, there's something for everybody. And the whole atmosphere is just so joyous. But Hillary's busy going, come on, Pauline, you could bring your poems up here. And there's a part of me at the time that was going, yeah, do you know what? I would love to do this. It would be such good fun. And then there was also another part of me that was going, yeah, and that's going to cost a fortune. And there's all the whole logistics of doing it. And then it's going to be really hard work and tiring. And yeah, it would be nice to do, but maybe no. And that's how it was. And then we went into lockdown and gave me a couple of years to save up some money. But also that the idea would never go away. But at the same time, I was really conscious that it was going to be very tiring. Mm. And so it is at this point that I shall mention the word menopause because (laughs) (laughs) I went into menopause really late. I didn't go into menopause till I was 57. And nobody tells you about what it's like to go into menopause or what to expect. And so I'd heard about sort of hot flushes and stuff. And yeah, those are pretty horrendous. But nobody told me about the other side effects to not having enough estrogen. And that was the fatigue and the anxiety and stuff. So from that point of view, me going to Edinburgh was not going to happen. Right. But we came out of one of the lockdowns. This would be around about this time last year. The classes got going again. But I was finding it really hard to teach and I wasn't enjoying teaching. And I couldn't understand why I was getting so anxious about going and teaching clients that I'd known for years, teaching a subject that I'd done for years and could do really well. And it was one of my other nieces, Alison, who said to me, because I had to cancel some classes because I just couldn't face going out and teaching. And so at this point, so the concept of going to Edinburgh is a definite no-no. But Alison said to me, have you seen Davina McCall's documentary, which Mm. had been on my list to watch on catch up, but I hadn't got around to it because she said, because it might be the symptoms of the menopause. And it didn't occur to me that anxiety and fatigue was part of going into menopause. I had an appointment with a doctor who was lovely and she said, yep, try some HRT. And the difference was gobsmacking. I had first This is going back years before they changed how they made your HRT. Originally, it was a pill that you took, but people were starting to get tumors and things in their livers, this kind of thing. There was a whole massive big scare around the use of HRT and people stopped using it. This would be when I was in my mid-40s. And so I still thought that your risks of getting cancer were really high. And I, my mum died of cancer. My two uncles, they died of brain tumours and things. So I was really reluctant to go on HRT. However, I was feeling so awful that I thought to myself, do you know what? The prospect of living another 20 or 30 years feeling like this is so awful that I would rather take the risk and shorten my life and feel well and go on to HRT. And that's what I did. And the difference was extraordinary. Even my husband has been so supportive with everything I've ever done. But he said to me, oh, Pauline, you're back. I've got my, I've got my wife back. And yeah. And so the idea, I thought, come on then, let's do it. Let's go to Edinburgh. Let's put this together as a narrative, my experience with the dogs in my life, past and present, friends, dogs, and put it together and then pitch it to a theatre. And yes, here we are. I am in the directory and we're off. (laughs) (laughs) And occasionally I go, oh my God, Pauline, what have you done? But most of the time I'm like, no, this will be fine. 
What's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is either A, nobody turns up, in which case no one's going to miss anything, so there's no harm done. (laughs) Two, I forget my line. I come from a sports background where if you make a mistake, like with the horses, you could end up getting killed or paralyzed. So to be honest, forget your lines. Yeah, we just go, I've forgotten my lines. And tell your audience, and then you get a book and you find it again. And just make it part of the show, which is what I've always done when I've taught Pilates. One of my mentors when I was teacher training said to me, you will make mistakes. But the thing to do is to come clean with them because your clients will love it if they discover that you're human. So if you get your words mixed up, and when I first started, I get my body parts mixed up, just go, (laughs) no, I didn't mean elbow because you can't touch your elbow with your hand. I make life a bit. So that's what I've always done. <laughs> oh, yeah. I am exactly the same when it comes to coaching because so often I'll be like, okay, now we're going to grab our knee. And I'm like, nope, that would be my heel. That would be yeah, my ankle. Exactly. It's not even like I'm saying like grab your quadrus. I'm just, I'm saying ankle. Yeah. But I can't. I'm saying <laughs> knee instead. Um, I do want to go back for one second because I'm really interested that it was your niece that brought up Davinia McCall's show because- mm you said nobody talks about it. And it's, I don't know how old your niece is or how young your niece is, but presumably younger. And it's just amazing that we are finally talking about it. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. When you're dealing with a teenager, people expect teenagers to be hormone. You're taught about puberty and all the rest of it. But the other end of this life cycle nobody talks about and so there's there's no preparation for what to expect about I don't even remember my mother ever mentioning menopause my sisters never mentioned that it was almost something that was just don't mention it you just have to put up with it and I suppose I come from a slightly odd background insofar as the generations are a bit mixed up my mother was 47 when she had me. Oh. And yes. <laughs> so some of, my, some of my sisters are quite a bit older than me. And it was a little bit similar for my husband, Carson, when, because I think his mom was in her early 40s, certainly, when she had him. So there was a big gap between him and his next brother and the other brothers on. So my niece, Alison, who is Carson's niece, I'm 62, and I think she must be 55. I think there's seven years between us. Yeah, so it's so she's watching it for her own information. Yes, exactly. <laughs> she was going into menopause. Like you say, it's being talked about now. In fact, I've just come off a course run by Body Control Pilates about the menopause. And interestingly, on that course, I was the only one that was actually in menopause. Everyone else was either perimenopausal or they hadn't gone into perimenopause yet. So it was really interesting conversation that everybody was having that when I was in my 40s was not being had. So they're getting that information of what to expect and what to look out for and what help there is out there, whether it's you go down the HRT route or you use other things to help you. But there is... You haven't just got to put up and shut up. Yeah. I must admit, right, when I left school at 16, I was meant to get my pension at 60. Now, if I was the way I was when I turned 60 and I was getting my pension, I would have just retired and just crawled off. It's only because I'm now expected to work till I'm 67 before I get my state pension that it's the case of if I've got to work till I'm 67. I'm going to need some help, whether that's medication or whatever, but I couldn't carry on working the way I was. And so I'm ever so grateful to Alison for going, I think it's a menopause, point. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going mad. <laughs> you just need some estrogen. Well, it's amazing too that it's, like you said, led to enough energy that's something you wouldn't have considered a couple of Absolutely. years ago, a few years ago, yeah. that you're like, I'm taking my show to Edinburgh. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a show. I'm gonna get on stage, and like you said, what's the worst that can happen? Yes. <laughs> well, you've already delivered an amazing poem, but I always ask people to bring a quote. So my quote is that life goes quickly, 
as you age and there just isn't enough time to waste sitting around in God's waiting room. I definitely love that. So is that a, that is a quote of your own? It's half and half. The God's waiting room bit was something that a dear friend of ours, Peter, who died very suddenly, used to say. Um, he used to say, yeah, there's no time to sit around in God's waiting room. You've just got to get on and do stuff. And the irony of it is he died really suddenly from a particularly aggressive form of leukemia when I was 50. So he would have been 61, 62. And he literally went from being okay to dead in seven days. And that is something that I've always kept with me is that you don't know what lies ahead. So you can't waste time thinking, I'll do that one day, but I need to wait a few years till I get to da 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 You need to just crack on and do it because you don't know what lies ahead. You know, yeah. there was two guys from his work who spoke at his funeral who Peter lived in sitting born in Kent, but his job was based in West Sussex. And these guys had arranged to come up to Peter's for a meeting on that particular day. And this meeting had been scheduled sort of a month earlier, but they didn't realize that they were going to come up and talk at his funeral on that same day, that they'd arranged to have that meeting. Yeah. Which is a very sobering thought. And I can remember when I went around, because Sue, Peter and Sue are friends 35 years, and we met through the horses. And so Peter and Sue were a couple that sort of stayed with me when I couldn't do the horses anymore. And Sue is my best friend. And, but I can remember going round to see her after he died and noticing that the skirting board was half painted because he'd been doing some decorating. And he never thought that he wasn't going to finish decorating. That yeah. kind of re really just brings it home to you. He wasn't planning on dying and it just happened. And it happened within seven days. Nobody saw that coming. Yeah. So God's waiting room is something he used to say. And I've added the other bits. There is something reassuring though, or uh, I don't know, a little bit comforting in if somebody's going to go that quickly, the fact that he was living his life saying, I'm not mm. just going to sit around in God's waiting room. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, that's very true. Yeah. Pauline, I have to say, I've loved hearing your poem. I've loved hearing about so many different interesting changes in your life. That's the thing. I call it the second chapter. And there's never anybody who comes and just has two chapters. And <laughs> it is really inspiring and really exciting to know that you're taking this show to the fringe, that you've got so much writing left in you. I look forward to seeing you in Edinburgh. We're going to get to meet in person because I am definitely coming to see this show. I'll put it in the show notes as well, but remind me of the dates and where the show's going to be. Okay. I'm part of Greenside and I'll be at the Fern Studio, which is Nicholson Square. And I start on the 5th of August and I go through to the 13th of August. There's no performance on Sunday the 7th because it's actually a Methodist church and they need it for a church service. Oh. So I can't perform on the Sunday. <laughs> but I'm in the brochure. And so if you go onto Ed Fringe website and type in my name, my show will come up. There's a picture of me with my lovely doggy Lizzie Lou looking pretty silly. <laughs> <laughs> so type in Pauline Holmes, you'll find her. You'll get to go see some amazing poetry and stories of dogs. Yay! Yes, and I've got a big screen as well. They've given me a big screen. So I've got pictures of the dogs as well. I was going to say, are there going to be lots of pictures of dogs? Okay. I'm, I'm even more excited. <laughs> if you're not a dog lover, probably best not to come to the show. You will find it tricky and a little bit boring. <laughs> but if you are a dog lover, you'll love it. Pauline, this is not how you sell your show. You have to say it's got something for everyone. <laughs> If I love dogs, <laughs> if you don't love dogs, if you just like hearing people talk, you'll love it. <laughs> I did the show once at the Faversham Fringe. This was before lockdown. And I always start it off by saying, 
am I in the company of dog lovers? And everyone goes, yay. And then I say, anybody here not a dog lover? And usually there's silence. And I did it this one time and somebody went, yes. And I went, oh. <laughs> what I said, do I say oh. now? <laughs> I said, did your partner bring you? Is she really keen on dogs? And she dragged you along too. And he went, yeah. <laughs> I said, well, that's all right. Just you sit there, have a snooze. It'll soon be done. And then she'll probably take you out for a pint. <laughs> Covered it that way. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining me. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Oh, thank you for having me. I've had a thoroughly enjoyable time. Yeah. And I look forward to meeting you in person very soon. Yes. And best of luck. Best of luck. Best of luck with your fringe run. Thank you. You too. <laughs> thank you. See you soon. Okie dokie. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. As I said at the top of the show, I'll be back with season seven on the 9th of August. But until then, why not download some previous episodes, recommend this show to a friend, and join our newsletter at thesecondchapterpodcast.com. See you in August. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on Instagram, and sign up for the Second Chapter newsletter. The Second Chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told, and who's telling them, with a specific focus on women 35+. You can find us at thesecondchapterpodcast.com and slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.